Thank you, choir. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 2, the second chapter of the book of Luke. That's where I want us to spend some time together this morning. You know, Christmas always gets here before we're ready for it, doesn't it? Seems like it always gets here quicker than we thought it was going to. Uh, how many of you, by the way, already have your, uh, all of your shopping completed? Any of you already done? Hey, raise your hands high because y'all are the weirdos. Okay, raise your hand. No, just kidding, just kidding. All right, most of us don't have our shopping done. Most of us don't get really, really excited about just going out, you know, like dealing with the crowds and all those kind of things and, and uh, knocking out all the shopping. But there are a few who just really get into it. How many of you really get into shopping? Let me see your hands, all right? No online shopping allowed during the next 30 minutes, right? So uh, you can't be doing that. But shopping, everybody has a different perspective. When you think about shopping, you're going out, you know, you've got a person in mind. You've got, you know, a family member or a friend or whoever it may be that you're shopping for. And uh, a lot of times you go in and you've already kind of got your plan in place. Here's what I found. There are those that shop without any regards to price. Now, if that's the case, you want to be on the receiving end of that, okay? Those who shop without any regards to price. In other words, they don't ever look at a price tag. Everything has a price tag, doesn't it? But there are those that shop. They don't ever really look at the price tag. They just kind of got their person in mind. They know what, you know, kind of know what they want to get for them. And then they go and they shop and they look for something. And they don't ever really, really even look at the price tag specifically. Now, if you are out shopping and, uh, and, and say, for example, if you're looking to buy jewelry and you go to a jewelry case and you've got all these rings and necklaces and bracelets and things that are there and they've all got price tags, but then there's that one that, that has a price tag, but it doesn't have a price. You know what I'm saying? It says like, see cashier, hey, that's going to cost you some big bucks right there. If you're shopping for a car and you're out of the lot and they've all got prices, but you come to that one car and it's always the one you like the best, isn't it? And it doesn't have a price on the price tag. It says, see salesperson inside for details. That is going to cost a chunk of change. Uh, everything has a price tag. And here's the thing. Price tags reflect a couple of things. One, price tags reflect cost. But at the same time, price tags also reflect value. A price tag reflects not just the price of something, but it reflects the cost. Say, for example, you, uh, say you sell crafts. You, you like to make crafts. You know, you've got maybe some woodworking abilities, or you're just a really you know, craftsy type person, and uh, you know, you're going to rent yourself a, a booth, you know, a table somewhere, and you're working on your crafts, and you're going to sell them at a, at a craft show. When you are, are deciding what price tag to hang on each one of those items that you've made yourself, you have to look at what it costs to produce that. And there are a lot of different costs. Any item that you pick up at a store. It's got a price and reflected in that price tag is going to be the cost. You know, there's the materials that went into it, the time that went into it, the labor that went into it. If it's a business, right, you've got advertising costs, you've got merchandising, packaging, uh, uh, transport, all those different things that roll into it. And so that price tag is not just a bottom line, here's what you're going to pay for this, but that price tag is a reflection of the cost of that particular item. Now, now, just think with me for a second and follow this track. If, if we can take the whole concept of Christmas, all right, take the whole concept of Christmas, of God sending his son for us, who came and who was born for us, his name is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. If we can take the whole concept of Christmas and attach a price tag to it, in the same way as when you go shopping, a price tag reflects cost, the price tag of the whole concept of Christmas would reflect cost as well. Here, here's why it's important for us to recognize this, because we, we often breeze through. I mean, we go flying through this time of year, don't we? And we go flying through. We've got things in our minds of what we want to buy and what we need to buy and teachers' gifts and family gifts and you know, just all these different things we want to do. We've got a menu to prepare. You know, if we're going to be traveling, you've got to you know, make flight arrangements if you're flying 
Uh, if you're going to be driving, you've got to make all those arrangements, all these different things. And what happens is a lot of times we go flying through Christmas. And yes, we understand that it's, it, it's a, spiritual, a spiritual event. We understand that you know, Jesus finds his way in there. You know, but sometimes we just miss the whole component of the cost of Christmas, what it cost God specifically for us to even have the concept of Christmas to begin with, because he didn't have to come. He didn't have to give us Christmas. He didn't have to choose to come. He could have easily chosen whenever we sin, whether it was through Adam and Eve, and we're all going to look for them when we get to heaven, I'm sure, have a little conversation when we get there. But whether it was when Adam and Eve sinned or when we ourselves committed our own first sin, God could have chosen to say, you know what? I'm done right here. You know, I'm out. You know, I'm going to step out of the circle now. You're on your own. Or he could have chosen just to do away with us altogether. He did not have to implement the whole concept of Christmas. We have to understand that when there's a price tag hanging on this thing called Christmas, that price tag reflects for us the cost that was associated with it. So that's what I want us to look at this morning. Christmas price tag, the cost today, and then next Sunday, we're going to look at the value because every price tag also reflects a value of something as well. We're going to look next Sunday at the value of Christmas. Really hope you're planning to be here. Luke chapter 2, this is where we're going to start today. Luke chapter 2. If you were to ask anyone, even those who never go to church, they don't have a relationship with God, but they're really into Christmas. What is the Christmas story in the Bible? Most would understand and say, well, it's in Luke chapter two. If you ever sit around with family, right, on a Christmas Eve, and someone says, grandpa, will you read the Christmas story out of the Bible? They're going to turn to Luke chapter two. Now, it's not the only place where we read of the details of scripture. You can read the detail or the details of Christmas. You can read of the details of Christmas in the Old Testament, right? Guys like Isaiah who prophesied, uh, Micah who prophesied, you know, the coming Messiah. Uh, the, the whole concept of Christmas is in the Old Testament. But really in the New Testament, you've got Matthew and you've got Luke who are our primary sources for the details to give us what we need to know about Christmas. And so in Luke chapter 2, that's what I want us to look at this morning. We're not going to cover all 20 verses that, that, that you probably read on Christmas Eve, possibly, but we're all going to look at, at the first few verses and just pull out a few details as we begin to examine the cost of Christmas. And so let's, let's begin here. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Luke writes, and Luke was a, a very attentive to detail. He says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. Let me just pause there. Caesar Augustus, who is he? Well, he was basically the Roman emperor you know, of that day. He served for a little over 40 years or so. Uh, he, he was serving for a lengthy period of time before Jesus would be born, and then for a brief period of time after Jesus. And so whenever Jesus was born... All the details that surround that event, Caesar Augustus was kind of in charge of the whole you know, Roman kingdom. He, he was the Roman Empire leader at the time. So Caesar Augustus would issue a, de- a decree. And whenever, whenever the Roman emperor issues a decree, man, you better follow it. And so he issues a decree that a census be taken of the whole inhabited earth, right? Meaning his area of influence, his area of reign. Verse 2, Luke says, this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now that may not mean very much to you, but for those of you who may have friends that are skeptics of scripture, right? They want to say the Bible was just this dusty old book written by men and God didn't have anything to do with it. Anybody could have written it. And just remember, 
the irony that's wrapped up that when you've got names that are named that today can be verified regarding, you know, through archaeology and different historical records, whenever the Bible names names and then history verifies them 2,000 years later, that's really, really significant. And so he gives us a name here. Quirinius was governor of the region of Syria. Verse 3, he says, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. So, so here's kind of the playing field. You've got Romans, uh, a Roman rule, Fit inside of Roman rule, you've got a group of people called the Jews that are God's chosen people, separate and apart, and yet they are operating day to day under the leadership of the Romans. So the Romans issue this this decree, it's going to impact everyone in Jewish circles who were living uh, under the influence of the Roman Empire. And yet, two specifically, Mary and Joseph, are especially going to be impacted. Look at what it says in verse 4. It says, So Joseph also went up from Galilee, that's a region, it's not a city, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, another region, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David. Let me just pause there in mid-sentence. Joseph was a Jew as was Mary. Joseph's line could be traced directly back to David. David who would have reigned uh, a thousand years before Jesus would be born. And so it was a big deal to be in the family line of David. Why? Because virtually every Jew knew that whenever the Messiah would come, he would come in the line of David. And so Joseph, in the family line of David, is living in Nazareth, and now because of this decree, he is required to uproot, to travel 85 to 90 miles, roughly, to Bethlehem. He couldn't take the Marta, right? He couldn't catch the city bus. He didn't have any other alternative but to find the, you know, the most comfortable animal he could, he could attain, and that was going to virtually be the way he was going to travel. And so Joseph is traveling now from Nazareth to Bethlehem, 85, 90 miles away, because he's in the house and the family line of David, Verse 5, in order to register uh, along with who? With Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Now, I'm just curious. How many of you have a translation that rather than saying engaged says betrothed? Any of you have a translation that says that? All right. You'll often find that, especially even if you don't use the translation that uses that. When you hear the Christmas story read out of Luke 2, many times you'll hear that, that Mary was betrothed to Joseph. What does that mean? Well, I think this translation catches it really well. It is a form of engagement with one major difference. That in the first century, uh, from a Jewish understanding, if you were betrothed to someone, if you were engaged, you were not officially married to the point to where you could ultimately have uh, physical intimacy that was not allowed. You weren't married to that degree. However, it was a binding arrangement that could only be broken by an act of divorce. And so for us to say, well, being betrothed, that's a lot like being engaged. Yeah, there are a lot of similarities there. It's a good way for us 2,000 years later to understand it. Mary and Joseph were engaged. But this was a binding arrangement, right? It would have taken an act of divorce for ultimately for it to be ended. And so here's the picture. You've got Mary and Joseph traveling from Nazareth to Bethlehem, 85, 90 miles away. They're traveling there because of the census that a godless emperor implemented that God's going to use. And they're traveling there, and Mary is expecting who would ultimately become, would be born as as Jesus. She's very close to delivering. You move into verse 6, you begin to see that those times have come soon. While they were there in Bethlehem, the days were completed for her to give birth. 
And she gave birth to her firstborn son. Now we say firstborn, I, I emphasize that because there, there are certain religious circles that like to, um, to, to try to argue that Mary never had any other children. And that's just unbiblical. It's, it's an idea. It's just not going to be supported by Scripture. In fact, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be uh, shot down by Scripture because in the Gospels we find that Mary would ultimately become married to Joseph and they would have other children. Jesus would be her firstborn of other sons that she would also have. And whenever Jesus was born, she wrapped him in cloths. That was a Middle Eastern custom for a newborn, wrapped him in cloths, and she laid him in a manger. Now, if, you, if you've never heard this story before, which is doubtful, probably most everybody here has, but if this is the first time you ever hear this, you're thinking, what in the world is going on with a manger? <laughs> and then the second question is, what in the world is a manger? Well, a manger is a feeding trough. And so whenever Jesus is born, this is God showing up, right? God in skin. He is born, and when he is born, he's placed in a feed trough because, it says at the end of this verse, there was no room for, room for them in the inn. So you got the introduction of a couple of interesting things. One, a feed trough, a manger, and then an inn. Now, now here's the thing. You're probably, you've got this, this idea of what the inn looked like, right? And it maybe comes off a painting that your grandma had, or it comes off of a children's book that you had when you are reading it as a child. But you've got this imagery, I bet, of an inn. And it's probably made out of stone, right? It's got the stone facing. You know, it's got a, a big hearth in there. There's a nice big warm fire burning, and there's a chimney with snow on the roof, and snow, uh, fire, you know, smoke's coming out of the chimney, right? This is the picture you've got. Maybe a couple of sheep scattered around up in there. It's just a really nice, homey place. Just take that, package it up, kick it to the curb. Because that is probably not what it looked like. This would have been a very rudimentary, uh, maybe even the only location like this in the city of of, uh, Bethlehem. Where traveling caravans would pass through. First come, first serve. Whoever gets there first. If there's a spot there, you got a place to stay. As you're trucking it on through to the next location. And, and, And poor innkeeper, right? Um, you know, you go to all the Christmas pageants that reenact this and play it out. And it's always the meanest guy in the whole entire church, right? If you were ever the innkeeper in, in a church play years ago, it's probably because you were really mean, <laughs> right? But this poor guy, he just gets raked over the coals, doesn't he, right? He, he, he does. It's always that one line, no room. You know, he has to hit his hand down. You know, it's like, get the road, get out of here. Yeah, it's just mean guy. There's nothing in the Bible that shows us this. I mean, the poor guy, how was he supposed to know that this was the Messiah? right? I mean, he didn't come with a sign. Mary didn't say, I'm carrying the Messiah. You know, she probably didn't say anything about this. How was he supposed to know? They weren't first in line. There was no room. And all he did was just share the facts. There's no room in the inn. You know, I'm sorry. There's no room here. Doesn't say he was mean, wicked, nasty, any of that kind of stuff. He just says there's no room in the inn. More than likely, Mary and Joseph retreat somewhere nearby. Jesus is born. She wraps him in cloths and she places him in a feed trough. And this was the entrance of God himself into the world as we know it. Not his beginning, by the way, because as God, he had no beginning. And he has no end. Alpha, omega, without beginning, without end. He is God. And yet it was his grand entrance, right, into this world as we know it. A guy named Peter Larson, I came across a quote as I was preparing for this message. Look at this quote. Man, I love this quote. He says, despite our efforts to keep him out, God intrudes. God does intrude, doesn't he? Man, I'm really glad he does. I'm glad he's intruded into different areas of my life. I'm glad he's a God who pursues us. But despite our efforts to keep him out, God intrudes. The life of Jesus is bracketed, think about this, by two impossibilities, a virgin's womb and an empty tomb. 
Jesus entered our world through a door marked no entrance. And he left through a door marked no exit. This was God among us. Emmanuel. God with us. And yet as we read the details of this true story, as Luke in great detail has captured it for us, we have to recognize that when he came that first Christmas, on that price tag hanging off of the concept of Christmas, that price tag captures for us a tremendous cost that went into that. And I want to give you a few of those just as a reminder this morning. The first would be the cost of Jesus taking on humanity in the first place. You know, if you think about it, Jesus as God, you know, I mean, he needed nothing in heaven, right? Needed nothing. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit were in perfect unity. It's not as though God, you know, collectively sat down as the Godhead, right, the Trinity, and said, you know what, we're a little lonely, we need some people, now, let's just make some people. Now, there was no need for any of that. I mean, everything was just fine when God was in unity, I know this is a deep thought, but in unity with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He didn't have to create us, and it still boggles my mind, knowing what it would cost him, that God even chose to create us to begin with. <laughs> and yet what we find is, is that when Jesus chose to come, and he didn't have to, that one of the greatest costs was the fact that he took on the limitation of humanity, right? And that was a limitation that we sometimes fail to realize. God is everywhere all the time, isn't he? Right? There somewhere right now is a believer in Brazil praying at the same time as there is a believer in the Philippines praying at the same time as there is a believer in Nigeria praying as, as, as well as there are people right here in this room right now that are praying. And God hears all of them because God is everywhere. He hears it all. He is omniscient. He knows everything. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. But yet when Jesus, God, chose to come in the form of, uh, of, of humanity, he took on the limitations of humanity at great cost to himself so that when he walked this earth, he could not be everywhere at the same time. He was either in Nazareth or he was in Bethlehem or he was in, in another city. He was at another location. He couldn't be with a leper here and with a widow there at the same time. He was in one place at one time and it was a limitation that Jesus willingly took upon himself. You know, I've used this illustration before that it's like a, like a three-legged race that, you know, if you have a Christmas party, right, and your boss says, hey, we're going to do a three-legged race, and you're thinking, oh, great, this is, this is horrible. You know, never good ever comes out of these kind of things. And, and imagine that the, the fastest guy in the whole wide world, you know, the, he, he's the reigning world champion in the 100-meter sprint, right? Imagine that he is somehow at your, your company party, and his leg is getting, getting tied to your leg. Now, that is really good for you. Okay, you have just really hit the goal, you know, the goal mine here. You're probably going to win this race because you are attached to the fastest guy on the planet. That is really good. However, he has just taken on a severe limitation, hasn't he? Because he's strapped to you now for the whole entire race. Now, he doesn't cease to be the fastest man on the planet. It's not like when they strapped his leg to yours that, all right, I'm no longer the fastest. No, by essence, by nature, he is still the fastest guy on the face of the globe, Right? But he has taken on a limitation. And that's somewhat what Jesus did. He did not cease to be God when he came. He was as much God in the feed trough as he is today. He didn't cease to be God. But when he came, he took on the severe limitation, a great cost where he limited himself by virtue of his humanity. 100% God, 100% man. Look at what Philippians chapter 2 says. You can just read it on the overhead for the sake of time. 
Paul writes, he says, speaking of Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Theologians call that kenosis. He emptied himself, not of his deity. (laughs) He never laid aside his deity. But he emptied himself, how? Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. What Paul is saying is, is that when the Son of God, God himself, in the flesh, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, came, he came at great cost, limiting himself by virtue of clothing himself in humanity. It's a tremendous cost. When you look at the price tag hanging off of the concept of Christmas, part of the cost woven in to Christmas is that Jesus took on flesh and blood just like us. John chapter 4, the woman at the well. That passage tells us that Jesus could become thirsty. Why? Because he was human. John chapter 4, the woman at the well. That passage also tells us that Jesus could grow weary. Why? Because he was human when he walked this earth. Matthew chapter 4, being tempted in the wilderness, Jesus would grow hungry. Why? Because he's 100% human when he walked this earth as well as God. John chapter 12, it talks about Jesus being troubled in spirit. Why? Because he took on humanity. Jesus knew what it was like to face the struggles of life. He knew what it was like to work in the carpenter shop and get blisters. He was human. He knew what it was like to be around people who would let him down. He was human. He knew what it was like, more than likely, to lose a parent. There's no mention of Joseph in the scriptures in the New Testament after Jesus turns 12 years old. Most would agree that it's probably because Joseph was no longer on the scene. When Jesus dies on the cross, he speaks from the cross to his mother, Mary, and commits her to the, uh, to the disciple John. Why would he do that if, uh, if, if Joseph was still alive? He wouldn't have. Jesus knew what it was like, can we say, at some point in his earthly life, to know what it was like to be raised in a single-parent home. He understood the dynamics of that. He heard the scorns of people. The book of John captures this for us. Whenever the religious leaders would would ridicule him at his claims to be God, and they would say, oh, we know where you come from. And when you read the terminology there in John, I believe it's in chapter 8, what you find there is that they're saying that, that they make a comment that, that seemed to indicate that their belief was that he came from illegitimate means. Oh, yeah, we know your start, Jesus. We know exactly who you are. He, Jesus heard all of that because of the limitations of humanity that he took upon himself at great cost. Jesus also absorbed the cost of rejection. Mark chapter 8, verse 31, he began to teach them as he moved into his ministry that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Don't forget those elders, chief priests, and scribes were the religious leaders. All of the religious leaders of Jesus' day virtually rejected him. And he shared that he would ultimately be killed and after three days rise again. It would be Jesus' own friend, Judas, Iscariot, that he had selected to be one of his inner circle of 12, Judas, that would betray him. Jesus knew what that felt like. The price tag hanging off of the concept of Christmas carries and reflects a great cost. Part of that is not just the rejection Jesus experienced, not just the humanity he took on, but also the suffering that he would experience. Look at what it says in the next passage, Luke chapter 22. The setting here is the crucifixion. This is just one brief excerpt of many others we could work in where he says the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him, beating him. 
And they blindfolded him and they were asking him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. The Gospels tell us that it would be Jesus who would have his beard pulled from his face. It would be Jesus who would be beaten. Many would say beyond recognition. It would be Jesus that would have a crown of thorns thrust down upon his head, beat down with a staff. It would be Jesus that would be publicly humiliated by the religious leaders and by his own people the day of his crucifixion. It would be Jesus that would be taken through a series of illegal trials, falsely accused, falsely convicted. And it would ultimately be Jesus that would absorb the cost, not just of the rejection, not just of the suffering, but ultimately of the cross itself. You look back again at Philippians chapter 2, look at this verse, verse 8. It says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so as we go flying through Christmas and we enjoy the things that we enjoy, most of which are really, really good, how sad it is that we sometimes allow ourselves to miss miss the fact that that concept of Christmas has a price tag hanging from it. And though that price tag captures value that we'll see next Sunday, man, it also reflects a cost that has nothing to do with advertising, nothing to do with merchandising, nothing to do with transportation, nothing to do with, with, uh, with anything else, marketing or any of that, nothing to do with the cost of materials, has everything to do with Jesus, God himself, taking the cost to make Christmas possible in the first place. Christmas price tag. If you don't read another book this Christmas outside of the Bible, I would recommend, recommend you reading a very simple one by Max Lucado called God Came Near. I read this book probably 20 years ago. It still sits on my shelf. And as I was preparing for this message, it still comes back to me at times, things that I read probably 20 years ago. I want to read somewhat of a lengthy excerpt from this that I think does such a great job of putting into perspective what Jesus chose to do for us and the cost that came with it. Max Lucado says, think about the implications. When God chose to reveal himself to mankind, what medium did he use? A book? No. That was secondary. A church? No. That was consequential. A moral code? No. To limit God's revelation to a cold list of do's and don'ts is as tragic as looking at a Colorado road map saying that you've seen the Rockies. When God chose to reveal himself, he did so, surprise of surprises, through a human body. The tongue that called forth the dead was a human one. The hand that touched the leper had dirt under its nails. The feet upon which the woman wept were calloused and dusty. And his tears don't miss the tears. They came from a heart as broken as yours or mine ever has been. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So people came to him. My, how they came to him. They came at night. They touched him as he walked down the street. They followed him around the sea. They invited him into their homes and placed children at his feet. Why? Because he refused to be a statue in a cathedral or a priest in an elevated pulpit. He chose instead to be Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. So what is the implication then of the cost that he absorbed to make Christmas possible in the first place? There's one thing I want you to take note of, and you'll see it on the overhead. The, The simple principle is this, that the high cost of Christmas 
If there's a price tag hanging from Christmas that reflects cost, the high cost of Christmas, ultimately should result in attracting our worship, our genuine, authentic worship, and our genuine, authentic surrender. How on earth can we move through a season like this and recognize the cost that God absorbed himself as an act of his will by choice for us to have a shot at knowing who he is? whenever he took that cost upon himself for us. That can only attract worship. When Jesus was brought to the temple at eight days old, it would be Simeon that would meet him. All Simeon could do was say, I have waited for this day and I can die in peace because I have seen the Messiah with my own eyes. Jesus would meet with Anna, a widow of decades that would live in the temple serving God and committed her life to serving God. And whenever Jesus as a child would be brought to Anna, all she could do was worship God. And everywhere he went, whether it was healing a leper, whether it was engaging sick people, whether it was interacting with hurting people, or whether it was ultimately spending his life to, to, uh, to pour into those who were, who were distant from, from, uh, from, from the, who had been marginalized from Jewish society, when Jesus interacted with people, most often they went away worshiping him. They either rejected him or they worshipped him. There was really no middle ground. And I think much of it was because of the recognition of the cost that he took upon himself to come for us in the first place. That God demonstrated his own love for us in this. That while we were yet sinners, man, Christ at great cost died for us. Hey, I don't know how it unfolded. And I don't know what it looked like or sounded like. But imagine there was a time when everything came to a head and it was time to go. And I wonder if the father didn't just say, Son, it's time to go. And it's going to cost you. And if he did, I would know for a fact that Jesus would have been quick to say, I understand the cost. And I'll be back soon. Hey, do you know him today? Do you know that kind of a Savior who gave everything for you? If you do, what he wants more than anything is your worship and your surrendered life. And if you don't know him, no better time than today, right here, right now, to choose as an act of your will to say, Lord Jesus, would you even forgive me and come and take over my life from this day forward? Let's pray. God, we thank you for... The whole concept of Christmas. We don't see that word in, your, in the scriptures. But God, we thank you for the whole concept of what we call Christmas. That you came for us in our time of greatest need. And Lord, had you not, we would be lost and undone forever. We needed a Savior. We still need a Savior as much today as the day we gave our lives to him. And God, we thank you that out of your great love for us, you chose to come. And you died and you endured everything you did. You took the cost and you paid the price so that we could have a relationship with you. And so, God, I don't know what the, res- what the response needs to be to every person this morning. I- I'm not sure. I'm sure for some they-, they need to just simply worship and praise you for who you are and for what you've done. God, for others, maybe for the very first time, the need is to recognize you, not just a, a baby in a manger. You're not that anymore. You're, you, are, you are God. You lived your life on this earth, and you, and you paid for us, for our sins, and you rose again. You're not still a baby in a manger, though that we sing about that so often. You are the risen king. 
And there may be some here this morning whose life is just an absolute train wreck and everything is falling apart. They've looked everywhere they could to find some source of meaning to their life, to find some sense of peace and, and relief, to make all the pieces fit. And Lord, the only remaining piece is to, is to ultimately surrender their lives to Jesus. God, for those who may be right there today, I pray that they understand the simple message of the gospel, that you, Jesus, came and died and rose so that we can have life and have it abundantly. Sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, a new start. God, for any here this morning who need that, God, I pray that right where they sit, that they'll simply invite you, Jesus, to come and to forgive and to take over. And so, God, have your way with us this morning, we pray. I pray that as we sing in a moment, that it would be from the heart with genuine, authentic worship. That when we leave this place, that we'll leave surrendered to you. And, God, that we would be grateful, always and forever, that when you saw the price tag hanging from the concept of Christmas and the cost wrapped up into it, that you paid it in the blink of an eye without hesitation because of your great love for us. So bless now our response, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's